Now we are uh, working through, bring up to speed on where we're at in our uh, series at the moment, we're working through the book of Hebrews in the Bible, one of the last books right toward the uh, right of your, uh, of your Bible, and we're in the, really the meaty, climactic part of this whole letter at the moment. Some of the, the toughest scripture that there is, but also some of the most rewarding when we really persevere and, uh, and get into it. This morning we're in chapter 10. And we're going to stick reasonably closely today to the actual text on the page, and so it's a good morning to have remembered your Bible uh, and to open it and follow along with us. We'll have the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but uh, see if you can actually open it and have it in front of you. So chapter 10 of uh, the book of Hebrews, and we'll pick it up in verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Now let's stop there for just a second. It's helpful to bring back to our minds quite often the group of people that this letter was written to. Try and keep that forefront. Otherwise, this whole letter just drifts into sort of an abstract piece of detached theology, which you don't want it to become. So this letter, hopefully by now some of this is becoming uh, ingrained in your minds, this letter of uh, what we call Hebrews was written to a group of who? Jews in what century? The first, you guys, come on now. The first century, and they were living, anyone? In Rome, yet we think, not not 100% certain, but that's uh, due to a reference at the end of the letter, probably living in Rome, uh, a group of Jewish Christ followers, so Jews who had now begun following Jesus as the Messiah, in Rome in the first century. And these were people who were having a hard time because of what they believed. They were being persecuted by the, the, the Roman imperial power of the day. They were being uh, just slandered in the streets. They were being shamed by their families. All of these things were going on. They were having a very, very rough time. But it is interesting as, as we look back at this group of people, they're not much like us. And this is one of the challenges that we've got. There really couldn't be a bigger cultural gap, in fact, between where we are as uh, North Shore suburbanites in New Zealand in the 21st century Western culture and this group of Jewish Christ followers in the first century in Rome. Not only the time span, but just the cultural chasm is so huge that sometimes we come to passages like this one today and we see things that just don't make a lot of sense to us because they refer to things that would have been big to them but mean nothing to us. And one of the classic examples of this is the whole idea of animal sacrifices, animals being offered to a deity. That is just a foreign idea. We don't do it. I, I, I can't remember the last time I offered an animal sacrifice. I, I couldn't even get a dead bird out of the chimney the other day. I had to get a friend to do it. I'm pathetic. I'm the most pansy pastor you've ever seen in your life. Okay. That's just how it is. We don't, we don't typically do this, you know, especially here in Auckland. You know, we're not too big on the blood and guts and that kind of thing. Randall, you know, he's a tough southern man. He'll slit a few throats of goats and things like that. But, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty foreign concept. But this was the world in which these people lived. The, the whole sacrificial system, offering animals, killing animals, uh, harsh as it sounds, uh, and offering them in various ways to God was part of that culture. And so it's important to understand that because the author of Hebrews draws on it so much to describe who Jesus was in terms that would have been incredibly meaningful for them. You don't want to lose that. Now, to understand that whole system, here's, here's a really important idea to keep in your mind. In the Jewish worldview, in, in the biblical uh, era, Old Testament, New Testament times, there are basically three categories or, or statuses that you could be in at any one time. Every person is always in one of these three categories. You can change between them. 
You can change between them very regularly in the same day, but you're always in one of them and you're always going to know exactly which category you're in. And these categories are holy, clean or common, and unclean. These three things. And you're going to know, and the big question on everyone's lips is, what status are you in? Are you clean? Are you unclean? Are you holy? This goes right back to Leviticus 10.10 in, in the law of Moses, where God says, I want you to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And so these categories became ones that people distinguished themselves by all the time. Now, holy was a category that only an elite few people ever made it into. If you were a Levite priest, this was you, a special group of people that were charged with performing duties in the tabernacle. They alone could have access to the presence of God and draw near to Him in various degrees, although never completely and never fully. We've seen how Aaron the high priest got to go into the most holy place, but only once a year, and even then, shrouded by smoke and all of these things, never ever direct and full access. But these guys in the holy category got the closest, only a few of them, and it was only a special designation. You couldn't sort of get yourself into that category if you weren't already there. The default setting for most people was the middle category of clean or common. This is where you basically start out as an Israelite, as a Jew. And it basically means if you're in the clean or common camp, you are obeying the prescriptions of the law, you're behaving yourself, you're not doing anything that defiles you, and you are generally keeping the instructions as they're laid down in the first five books of the Bible. Sooner or later, though, it is inevitable that you are going to do something, say something, touch something that renders you unclean and shifts you into the category of unclean. Now, it's important to note that this is not just things that we would consider to be morally wrong, not just what we'd think of as sin. It certainly includes those things, lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery, coveting your neighbors, whatever. All of those things, they are going to place you in the unclean camp, but it's also a bunch of other things too. Simply being ritually polluted, simply touching things that were deemed to be unclean is going to contaminate you. So there's a whole bunch, you can read these if you've ever gotten into that wonderful book of Leviticus, you can read these for yourself. They're all right there. Let me give you some examples. If a, when a woman gives birth, she is automatically unclean for a period of time, and then she can be made clean again. If you uh, contract certain illnesses or diseases, you are automatically unclean. If you come into contact externally with any bodily fluids, I won't say any more about that, you become unclean. If you touch certain animals, if you touch a dead corpse, you are automatically unclean. And the big problem is how, once you're unclean, are you going to get clean again? And this really is the whole purpose of the animal sacrifice system. The main way that when a person is unclean, you get made clean again is through the offering of some type of animal, along with other things. Sometimes it's just the passing of time. You need to wait till sundown. Sometimes it's bathing your body in water. Sometimes it's offering other things like grain or different types of liquid. But central to the whole idea is at some point the offering of an animal. And, and sometimes it's birds as well as goats and bulls and these kinds of things. So you would find people constantly shifting between clean and unclean, clean and unclean right through their lives, through any given week. This is happening all the time. Let me give you an example. Just try and think what life would have actually been like under this kind of system. I, this year, I've had a little bit of dermatitis on my face, a little bit of a rash. Some of you have noticed this and pointed it out to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so it's been, you know, if, if, if I had woken up with this little rash on either side of my nose in, in this system, I can forget about going to work that day. The first thing I've got to do is go and find a priest. 
that priest will inspect this rash and he will tell me whether it is what is called a defiling skin disease. Not really a self-esteem booster, that, uh, that, that label. So he will pronounce me on the spot as either being clean or having a defiling skin disease. If I have such a disease, I am immediately contaminated and therefore unclean. This is actually, this is not fairy tales, this is actually how it worked, day-to-day -day life. You are unclean. That means, in the earliest days, that would have meant you're actually expelled from the camp. You go outside where all the tents were pitched in, in, in Israel, and you are, have to wait outside the whole physical camp for a period of time. Probably by the time we get to the New Testament and these, these writers that we're talking about here, it would have been more like just shut yourself off from any other contact with anyone for a period of time. So that generally would have been a day. I would have to lock myself in my bedroom, not have any contact with any other person, because if I do, they are then made unclean. This whole thing is extremely contagious, and I have to isolate myself. After that, I then go and select a couple of birds according to the specifications laid down in Leviticus for defiling skin diseases as opposed to other types of illnesses. I then come to the tabernacle or the temple or the synagogue. I offer those to the person who is in charge. They get offered in a particular ceremonial way. And at that point, and only at that point, my status can be changed back to clean. Some illnesses, you remain unclean for a much longer period of time. Some illnesses like leprosy, you would have remained perpetually unclean. What does that tell you about Jesus who came along and began touching people with such diseases, leprosy and so on? Can you see how culturally offensive that would have been? But this is the world they lived in. So you're constantly oscillating between clean, unclean, clean, unclean. You never really get to the holy category unless you are a Levite. This is also the world into which Jesus was born. He grew up in the system. These three categories were very much around. So coming back to this text in Hebrews chapter 10, here are these words from Psalm 40 in verse 5 that are placed on the lips of Jesus. Jesus being a Palestinian Jew in the first century who would have been clean, unclean, clean, unclean at various times in his life. And yet here are these words he is speaking to God saying, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. How is it that Jesus can make a comment like that when sacrifices and offerings are exactly what God required? They are exactly what God prescribed in order to solve the problem of becoming unclean. Well, keep reading. In verse 8, this is spelled out a little bit more. And if I can read the micro words on my page, I will read it to you. Verse 8, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, that he is Jesus in this context, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now, here's the question, think about those three categories, holy, clean or common, and unclean. Which category would Jesus have been in? We instinctively want to say the holy category. We want to put him in there because we're good Christians. Let's, put, let's go as high as we can with Jesus. But remember, he would have done things in his life that placed him in the category of unclean. He broke certain regulations about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Working of different types. He was picking grain on the Sabbath. This is just forbidden. He came in contact with people who had such defiling skin diseases like leprosy. Immediately, that would have made him unclean, according to the law, not, not just according to some made-up law, according to the actual Old Testament. He touched a dead corpse, his friend Lazarus, 
before he raised him back to life, but even so, he was fully dead, otherwise it wouldn't have been a miracle. This was a corpse. Jesus touched it immediately. The implication is he is in the category of unclean. So we're facing a situation where our own Lord and our own Saviour at times in his life made himself unclean. And yet, here is the crucial point to grasp. Jesus' life in its entirety embodied what the law always pointed toward. Whether or not he kept the specific prescriptions of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Jesus' life embodied what all of those prescriptions ultimately pointed towards, true obedience from the heart, true adherence to the will of God, not just external purity, not just ceremonial cleanliness. That was never the goal. That was never ultimately what God was after. He didn't just set up a bunch of rules to make life hard. He set up a bunch of rules to reflect the fact that our lives are to be pure, to give us an object lesson for the fact that we are to maintain and strive for purity before God. And Jesus, though breaking some of the specific commandments, the prescriptions around that Levitical code, kept the perfect intention of the law, not just externally, but through a heart that was pure and dedicated to the Lord's service. And his external actions were the perfect reflection of the character of God, not just ceremonial cleanliness, but a life that is sold out, that is consecrated, that is dedicated to God. Which means that Jesus, in actual fact, was the only person who didn't need to offer any sacrifices. And this is why we read these words, burnt offerings and animal sacrifices you did not desire, because God didn't require those of Jesus. He was holy. He embodied that category in a unique way in which no one ever had before. He was truly holy inside and outside. And here is the genius of the whole biblical story. It was precisely because Jesus didn't need to offer any sacrifices for himself that he was able to become a sacrifice for others. This is where it gets personal. This is where we get drawn into the story because Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. He was able to turn around and say, okay, I am going to become the sacrifice. I'm going to become the equivalent of what those bulls and goats and birds and grain offerings and drink offerings were all about. I'm going to become one of those in the flesh, on the cross. I will take that role and I will be a sacrifice, not for my own sin because I don't have any, but for the sins of others. And he became that for all those of us who would follow him. And the result of that sacrifice, which took place on that Roman cross on that Friday afternoon, 2,000 years ago, the result of that is spelled out for us now right here in verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can you see what's happened here? You notice it doesn't say we have been made clean. Now, it's true that we have been cleansed, and at other times the author of Hebrews talks about that. But here, we haven't just been shifted out of the unclean category into the clean category, we've been promoted right through to holy. We are now able to occupy the holy category because Jesus became a sacrifice for us. That doesn't mean that we no longer do things wrong in our lives. It doesn't mean that we never trip up, that we never sin, that we never stumble. But it means in terms of your standing before God now, you stand before Him in the status of holy, clean and pure, before him. And again, not just an external cleanliness. In fact, not at all just that, that kind of ritual, but an internal purity of heart 
and conscience and objective standing of holiness before God. That is what Jesus has accomplished for us, given us the absolute highest status you can have. And remember, the people in that category of holy in the Old Testament were the only ones who were permitted to have any kind of access to God. And so it is with us, because we now inhabit this category of holy, not just clean, but holy. We now have the unbelievable privilege of an open door and direct, unrestricted, unhindered access to the presence of God. This is what it means to be a believer, because God the Holy Spirit lives in our heart now. We have direct fellowship, we have direct communion, a direct line to Him, because we are holy. Don't hear in that word the idea of being morally perfect. That's not its base meaning. doesn't mean that you do everything right, that you are somehow perfectly pious. It means that you occupy a standing before God where you are pure and, and holy and clean in His eyes in terms of your standing before Him. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, we stand before Him in, in, in clothes, garments of righteousness now. No longer those filthy rags, but clothed in the righteousness or the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. That is the privilege we have. That's what Jesus' sacrifice has accomplished. And then the news gets better. It goes on. Keep reading here. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We've, we talked about this right back at the beginning of our series in Hebrews, how standing up was always critical to the work of the priest to signify the fact that their work was never done always offering more sacrifices, always coming before God, always with a new animal, ne never sin, never fully, finally dealt with. Even the Day of Atonement, that great yearly festival, never finally dealt with sin, simply because it was a yearly event. If it had dealt with it once and for all, we would not have had to repeat it, but it was repeated. Priests continually stand. But, verse 12, when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered one for, one, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There is that fantastic image of Jesus completing his priestly work, having been made the sacrifice for our sins, and then having a seat to signify the fact that it's done. And as a result, verse 14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Again, when you hear that word perfect, it's easy to assume, oh, Jesus has made me perfectly moral. He's made me without any, any wrongdoing in my life. It doesn't just mean perfect piety. It doesn't just mean that you don't have any problems. It means, that word perfect literally means complete. It means everything that needs to be done has been done. Every sacrifice that needs to be made has been made, and only one in our case, because it was a perfect sacrifice, that of Jesus Christ. He has perfectly fulfilled all the requirements to put us in that holy category, and the implication of that is that we no longer live on this knife edge between clean, unclean, clean, unclean. We don't oscillate anymore between those categories. Many people live as if they do. Experientially, Christians are still in this boat of feeling like we make one stumble and suddenly I'm unclean. We make one wrongdoing, one, one wrong turn, and all of a sudden God's displeased with me. All of a sudden God's angry towards me. That's exactly what Jesus died to take away, that whole system, so that now we are perfect forever. Circle that word in your Bible if you like. These key words, holy, perfect forever. That status is fixed. It is secure. And it's not that when you do one or two things wrong, suddenly you're back out and then you work your way in again. He's died to make sure that is not the case. And because he has sat down, there is a finality to it. Until he stands up again, nothing's changed. 
So it's that question. You remember? We taught each other to ask, is Jesus still sitting down? Yep. Check back in Hebrews. Yes, he sure is. Back in Hebrews chapter 1, Christ sat down. And the next time he stands up, it's going to be when God pulls everything together and places it under his feet when Jesus finally returns. Until then, he's sitting down having perfectly atoned for our sin. That word atonement, you hear it thrown around, it simply means at one meant. It means bringing us back at one with God. That's the idea. Pulling us back, reconciling that severed relationship that we've had with the Father. This is what Jesus has done for us. And finally, let's wrap it up. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Circle that word forgiven. Sin has been completely removed. It's been taken away. Imagine what it would have been like for a Jew living in the first century in this crossover time between when Jesus came and then a member of the early church. You can imagine a Jew with a goat in his hand walking up to the temple in Jerusalem, ready to offer the sacrifice because a couple of days ago he did something, said something, touched something that made him unclean. He stuffed up, he messed up, called someone a name, lied, cheated, stole, whatever. Now he's got the sacrifice, this goat that he's going to bring to make restitution for his sin. And as he's walking up the temple stairs, he suddenly recalls to mind this incredible truth. Sin has been forgiven. It's been dealt with because of Jesus, because of this Jewish peasant who made himself this, the equivalent of what I'm holding in my hands, except his sacrifice was perfect, and now I have no more need to slit the throat of this goat. And so you can imagine him almost with quivering arms, perhaps putting this goat down on the ground and letting it go. Imagine what that would have felt like. Probably, on one hand, very liberating, I can imagine. A lot more time on your hands now. Don't have to offer animals all day. But on, another, on the other hand, I think, probably twinged with feelings of guilt. You can imagine how hard it would have been to let that, that animal go free, having been brought up in that system, having known this is the way you make restitution for your own wrongdoing. And the truth is, there is something comforting about being, to, being able to atone for your own sin. There's something quite refreshing and relieving about being able to offer something to make up for your wrongdoing. That if I mess up, if I break the law, all I need to do is find the right animal, take it to the right guy, say the right words, go through the right motions, and I'm good. And that's it. Which is why over time people's heart got sucked right out of it. This is why I think it was such a difficult system for Jewish people to give up. Think of how hard it must have been for them to let all of that go. And honestly, it's still hard, I think, today for people to let this go. Because in a different form, in a different time, we can still find ourselves trapped in the same type of sacrificial system, bringing offerings and bringing sacrifices to try and deal with our junk, to try and make restoration for our sin. We're not offering bulls and goats anymore but we're doing other things. For some people, it's simply keeping a tally so that you offset the bad with the good. You know, a classic example of this is if you're in a relationship, maybe a marriage, close friendship, and in the past you've blown it. You've, done, you've made some big mistake, and now that hangs over your head like a big dark cloud in the relationship, and you feel day to day like you're on a knife edge. Because if you put one little foot wrong, that's all going to come rushing back to stare you down again. You are constantly trying to pay off that debt 
in your past in this relationship. You're constantly trying to be better, not just to be better, but because you think you've got to try and prove and compensate for something that's happened a long time ago. And your whole relationship now is characterized by working, 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 trying desperately to get rid of that, get that monkey off my back. Some people try and self-atone through certain forms of self-accusation. That if I can beat myself up enough, then surely that has gone some way to dealing with this problem. And so when we mess up and we do things that disappoint ourselves and disappoint God, we feel like this is a time to throw rocks at myself. This is a time just to, you know, call myself all kinds of names, remind myself of how utterly sinful and condemned and useless I am. We get the rod out, we start whipping ourselves. And this takes different forms, depression, ultimately suicide. It's a form of self-atonement, trying to bring kinds of offerings that will somehow counter, somehow deal with all this junk in my life. In extreme cases, some people try and atone for the sins of others, especially in abuse situations. You have people that are trying to pay off offenses that have been committed against them because ironically and sadly, they bear the guilt and shame of despicable acts that have been done to them. And they now carry that around as if it was their fault. They try and pay it off. They try and wear a mask, become a certain type of person, project a certain type of image to try and deal with that grievous sin. We are people who are given, perhaps without even thinking about it, to bringing the same kinds of sacrifices, perhaps not animals, but trying to pile up the sin offerings, pile up the burnt offerings. Try and try and try and purge sin from our life. We feel instinctively that there must be something I can do about it. There must be some kind of reparation that I can make. It is instinctive, but it runs absolutely counter to the message of the book of Hebrews. And we need to be drawn back to these three words that have cropped up in this passage this morning. Holy, perfect, forgiven. And you notice with those three words, each of them are in the passive tense. This Greek grammar has never been more important in a passage. Why are they in the passive tense? Because there's nothing here about making yourself holy, only of being made holy. There's nothing here of making yourself perfect, only of being made perfect. There's nothing here of obtaining your own forgiveness, only of being made forgiven, being forgiven by God. And this is really the nerve center we're touching at the, at the very center of the Christian faith right now, what we call substitutionary atonement, that on that cross, Jesus became for us the perfect sacrifice and did for us what we can never do for ourselves to make us holy, to make us perfect, to accomplish our forgiveness. And I think one of the hardest things to do in the life of the Christian is to let go. Let go of trying to do it ourselves. Let go of trying to atone for our own sin, try and bring our own offerings, and instead to rest completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't come naturally. We feel guilty about it, but this is where you have to feast your mind on these truths. Who are you this morning? You are holy. You are perfect. You are forgiven. That is your new identity in Christ. Those are the new set of clothes that we have to put on. And we need to allow our personal self-understanding to be reshaped by these central truths of the Christian life. It's that classic old, slightly cheesy cliche that the Christian faith is the difference between do and done. In every other religious system, 
that you can try your hand at, it's constantly doing. It's constantly trying to do something, whether it's seeking enlightenment, whether it's adhering to the five pillars of Islam, whether it's generating positive karma, we're constantly working. There's constantly something you have to do. And Jesus Christ cuts right across that with the message that it is done. Sacrifices and offerings you did not require, but a body Jesus has taken on and offered in our stead. It is done and there's absolutely nothing that you can add to it. And so Hebrews turns that question back on ourselves. And let me leave you with this this morning. What sacrifices and offerings are you trying to bring to make restoration for your own sin? Now there are good types of offerings and sacrifices and we talk about those often in worship. The sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and these things that God truly requires. But there are those sacrifices where we're trying to pay off a debt that is not ours to pay off, that we simply cannot pay off. If you've ever tried, you know. It ends in frustration, it ends in depression, it ends in agony. We can't do it. So stop trying. Stop trying. Stop trying to be what you just can't be. Stop trying to please everybody. Stop trying to lift that boulder off your own back. You can't. It is far too heavy. Only the grace of Jesus Christ can remove that from you. And that's exactly what he's offering you today. The removal of sin, holiness, perfection, and forgiveness. What sacrifices are you bringing? Maybe it's simple spiritual disciplines, things that are great in themselves, reading the Bible, praying, coming to church, good things, but you are using those to try and compensate for stuff that's wrong in your life. You're using them as burned offerings and sin offerings. And God's saying to you today, I don't require those things. It's not, that's not how you're saved. They are good. They are godly. They are the response to grace, but they're not the means by which you earn it. You need to change your motives. You need to allow that penetrating light of the Holy Spirit to shine deep within your heart and reveal to you things that you may be trying to do to add to what Jesus Christ has already done. And then we need to come back again and just drink in the truth of those three words. You are holy, you are perfect, and you are forgiven. That is who you are. That's your new identity in Christ. So own that and rejoice in that and live out of that because of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you accomplished on the cross for us. Lord, it's a scandalous truth that you give us what we don't deserve, you pay us what we have not earned, and you send us away free people. The chains are gone, our hearts are free, and we are now able to rise and go forth and follow you. Lord, it's an unspeakable privilege. It's so contrary to the way our world works, it's contrary to the way our, it works in our jobs, in our, in, our, in our families, in so many spheres of life, but this is the economy of grace. And Lord, would you shift our thinking? I pray for those this morning, even in this building right now, that are doing, saying, trying stuff to try and wash their hands of those stains of sin that just will not come out. Father, rather than those futile efforts, I pray you'd lead them back to just fall at the foot of the cross again this morning. Think of the words of that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Lord, we want that to be our prayer. We acknowledge we're not there yet, but we thank you that you've already won our salvation on the cross. And now we simply work it out day by day in our lives, basking in the freedom of grace. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Amen. Amen.